Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today and I am joined by Rising first timer, Spencer Brown. Spencer, welcome. I'll go easy on you for the first day. Don't worry about that. Uh, but we're filling in for that. Brown and Robbie, so don't be alarmed. We'll be back with you next week and Amber and I will be here for our usual Rising Fridays tomorrow. Uh, Spencer, uh, are you ready to have fun? Have some, have a good time? Absolutely. It's Friday Eve. Uh, the weather has finally cooled down a little bit here in D.C. It's a great day to talk about the news, and there's plenty of it. I like thinking of Thursday as Friday Eve. That's good. Uh, so first, let's get into this. President Biden's reelection campaign is reportedly fundraising off of House Republicans' impeachment inquiry, calling it theater with bad actors. In an email signed by Vice President Harris on Wednesday, the campaign said the impeachment inquiry is being launched by, quote, MAGA Republicans and is, quote, beyond ridiculous. They asked for donations of $5, $10 or $25 to, quote, fight back against Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene's vicious lies. Yeah. Meanwhile, Hunter Biden and his legal team filed a lawsuit Wednesday against former Trump White House aide Garrett Ziegler over the publication of the private photos, emails and other materials that came from a hard drive that is allegedly belonging to Hunter Biden. This now is according to CBS News. Here's White House spokesman for oversight and investigations, Ian Sams, speaking with CNN. Again, I think this is part of the right wing's misinformation machine to try to confuse people uh, about what the truth is. The truth is that the president, as he has said publicly for years, uh, calls his family every day to check in. He calls his son every day to check in. He calls his other family members to check in to see how they're doing. He loves them. There's, they're a tight-knit family. And what the GOP's own witness testified in this case is that that's exactly what the president was doing. He was checking in with Hunter. So it's all about, again, this idea that this is a case of a father's love for his son. I don't know what to make of this. You know, you look at the way the White House has changed the official line on this. Initially, it was that Joe Biden has never discussed business with his son, Hunter. Then it was Joe Biden has never been in business with his son, Hunter. And now this seems like an admission that he did, in fact, discuss business with his son. What say you? Yeah, I think the the whole thing is, it's obvious if you look at the evidence at the cause and effect, right? You look at Hunter Biden joining the board at Burisma, and there's all this stuff about Victor Shokin, whether or not he was under prosecution. That's not as interesting to me as the huge salary he was getting on a monthly basis, $80,000 per month. And then as soon as Biden's out of office, within two months, it's down to 44000 To me, the whole Hunter Biden, Biden situation and their connections to Burisma is just business as usual for who's in the highest office in the United States. When I think of multinational corporations colluding with the foreign policy establishment and our elected officials, our head of the national security establishment, uh, the NSA or the secretary of state, you see them working with people that they worked with at Sullivan and Cromwell, big corporate law firms. And now they're brokering deals foreign policy wise for the benefit of those large corporations that were formerly their clients that I'm sure they have stock in. And so to me, this is not something that's like new or unique to the Biden family. I will say in a very nihilist uh, approach that it's good to see the Democrats finally get some backbone around messaging. I mean, Trump has to go uh, to court to fight a criminal case. And he's like, I did everything right. I made a perfect phone call. It's kangaroo court. And his base eats it up. It's about time the Democrats flip the script in the same way and use what the Republicans are doing as political material. 
I think it's interesting that you pointed out the salary, because again, this Hunter Biden is not known for an expert in energy technology or infrastructure or anything like that. And the phenomenon that you mentioned there is something we also saw with his uh, budding art career, if you will. Remember when he put together these paintings that were basically him just blowing paint through a straw onto a canvas and they were fetching these exorbitant prices. It wasn't because he actually was creating something new and original and beautiful for someone's home. It was again all about this access that you were talking about, how these uh, the people in power sort of just traffic in access and proximity to who gets to make the decisions and decide who's in and who's out. Um, do you think that Hunter Biden, if he makes it through all this, will find another career to try for? That's a really good question. I don't think there's a lot of hope of Hunter Biden getting hired somewhere. I mean, if he was an everyday person, that would be the case. If he was just, you know, someone who was not the president's son going and applying for jobs with everything that's out there about him in the media, you know, of course not. But he's Hunter Biden. I'm sure he has some powerful connections and his dad has, you know, friends who would place him in a comfortable position at their company. That's really how it goes for a lot of elites in the United States. I mean, for most people, their career would be over, but I don't know, can he live off of investments? It seems that he's kind of struggling financially if he's willing to go to court uh, with the mother of his child over the child support that he's paying, which was set at $20,000 based on his former salary. Is he gonna get another position like that? He seems to think that he won't if he's willing to go to court and have all of his financial information exposed and have this kind of embarrassing back and forth with the mother of his child, he probably isn't too hopeful about his financial prospects. He probably believes that even if he gets another job, he'll be making much less. Well, I think it is notable, too, if you look at uh, some of the reporting around what uh, Joe Biden has been able to do for his family. There was reporting about how he wasn't even able to get, uh, you know, his granddaughter into, I think it was Georgetown, uh, when that favor was requested. So maybe that currency is running out a little bit along with his painting salaries. Uh, well, according to reporting from The Hill, a high-ranking FBI official involved in the Hunter Biden investigation, Thomas Sabachinsky, debunked key testimony from an IRS whistleblower who came the, claimed the top prosecutor on the case was prevented by the DOJ in bringing charges outside of Delaware. Now, Subachinsky was the FBI lead on the team investigating Hunter Biden, and he spoke with House investigators last week, pushing back on testimony from another agent in the case who said now special counsel David Weiss was denied that authority and limited from bringing charges in districts beyond Delaware. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre apparently walked away from the podium during a press briefing after being asked about the Hunter Biden saga. Let's watch. And with that, folks. Explain why the president interacted with so many of his son's Ford business associates. More than half of voters told CNN they believe the president was involved and he lied. You can't have a response to that, Kareem. That's quite the moment. Uh, it's a bit of political theater. It's kind of dramatic, the face she makes before she walks away. And you almost wonder if she was given a directive of what her response should be if Hunter Biden is brought up in one of these press briefings again and she just decided to not go with that, you know, advised speech. Or if this was the plan, if there was some conversation in the White House that if Hunter Biden is brought up, just don't say anything at all and walk out of the room. It seems to me that this brings more press attention to the Hunter Biden issue, and that's the last thing the administration wants, which makes me think perhaps Corrine Jean-Pierre was not following orders when she walked out of the room. 
That's definitely an interesting idea. I mean, if you look at sort of the strategy that the Biden administration and the White House specifically has used with Karine Jean-Pierre as the spokesperson, uh, they've had a rough go of it. I'm thinking back to when all the classified documents and boxes were being found in Biden's home in Delaware and in the Biden uh, post-vice presidency office here in D.C., and how she was sort of let out there to say things that turned out to not be true because they were apparently just keeping her in the dark. So I feel like maybe they broke some of the trust that she may have had with others in the White House counsel's office or the people who are running these oversight investigations. Uh, and now she's just not wanting to say anything because then ultimately it's not those people that tell her or don't tell her certain things that have to face the press when it turns out what she said was wrong. It all falls on her. So maybe she's gotten a little trigger shy about saying things that she might not believe uh, that's coming from within the White House. Yeah, this moment to me, it's, it's kind of funny. It's kind of giving Dave Chappelle's Black Bush skit when he's asked <laughs> tough questions in the meeting and he just knocks over the water and just runs out. Um, that's If that's the state of American politics, that's the state of American politics, well predicted by comedy. Perhaps life mocks art rather than the other way around. But I think it, it really speaks to what, what's going on in the Biden administration. They have nothing at all to say about this. Mm. I mean, at, at least give some kind of a response. I mean, I, is walking out of the room better than the usual kind of paternalistic, oh, don't worry about it. Everything that they talked about is happening, didn't happen, and all of the evidence isn't really evidence. And then a few months later, it comes out that there's some evidence, there's some text messages, there's some emails, there's some phone calls, there's some congressional testimony from witnesses. Uh, and then they have to go back on what they originally said. And so it's a really weird situation. The way they're handling the Biden administration is like these people didn't have a lifelong career in politics. And so I don't know if they're worried about Biden's mental health, Hunter Biden's mental health, and that's why they're not really dealing with this with the press and talking about it. I think that could be a consideration here. Uh, but at the end of the day, when you're the president, you have an accountability that you have to meet with the public. You should be accountable to them to explain what's going on when there's controversy that I'm sure countries around the world are looking at. Uh, and so that's why I really wish Karine kind of stayed and answered the question there. Yeah, I agree. I think even, like you were saying, sort of her paternalistic, just sort of scolding of, well, I'm obviously not going to address that, or I'm just not doing that today. Uh, something, instead of just turning and walking away, I think would have been better for her and for the narrative. But it seems like kind of no matter what they do at this point in the investigations, whatever the White House does turns out to be the wrong thing because there's so much media attention on it. Uh, and we will talk about that and much more with more Rising after this. CNN's Anderson Cooper pressed former Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi again and again and again if she thinks Vice President Kamala Harris is the best running mate for President Joe Biden. Let's watch. Is says, Vice President Kamala Harris the best running mate for this president? He thinks so, and that's what matters. And by the way, so? she's very politically astute. I don't think people give her enough credit. Uh, she's, of course, values-based, consistent with the president's values and the rest. And... Uh, People don't understand. She's politically stupid. Why would she be vice president if she were not? But when she was running for uh, attorney general in California, she had 6% in the polls. 6% in the polls. And she politically astutely made her case about why she would be good, did her politics, and became attorney general. So don't, people shouldn't underestimate what Kamala Harris brings to the table. But do you think she is the, the best running mate, though? She's the vice president of the United States. So when people say to me, well, why isn't she doing this or that? I said, because she's the vice president. 
That's the job description. You don't do that much. Mm. You know, you, you know, you, you, you're a, a source of strength, inspiration, intellectual resource, and the rest. And you, and she, I think she's represented our country very well at home and abroad. Host of Savvy Sav's podcast, Sabrina Salvati joins us now to weigh in. Thanks for being with us, Sabrina. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. I really want to get into, of course, the she's the vice president. She doesn't do that much. But really, the 6% in the polls argument that she was getting 6% in the polls and then ultimately became attorney general in California. She had a long presidential campaign in 2020. And California is very different from the rest of the country. And she did not do so well in the rest of the country. It was a miracle that they made her vice president. What do you make of that case from Nancy Pelosi? I think that was Nancy Pelosi's nice way of not saying that Kamala Harris is not, you know, the correct choice for vice president. Because I think if we go back, we have to remember the 2020 presidential election. Uh, Kamala Harris did not even win her own state, right? She couldn't get a delegate from her own state. I think that what people have to remember is when we look at Joe Biden, everyone keeps talking about his age, but I would ask people to focus on his health. Uh, It's very apparent that Joe Biden is experiencing some type of cognitive decline, like right before our eyes, whether it's via interview, whether it's press conferences that he's had, it's very apparent. What we have to ask ourselves, if something were to happen to Joe Biden, let's say he has to step down for health reasons, would you be comfortable with Kamala Harris being president of the United States. I think she struggles uh, during interviews. I think we have to remember that she was actually put in charge of the border, the immigration situation. That was her task that was assigned to her by President Biden. And she doesn't seem to be making any type of headway or gains there. There's still kids in cages at the border. So I think, I think what Joe Biden did is he chose someone that would appeal, I guess, to the African-American community, that would also appeal to women. I chose that person to help him basically, you know, get over that hump to beat Donald Trump in 2020. But here we are now and we see that Joe Biden is experiencing uh, some type of decline. And now there is worry or concern that Kamala Harris may have to step in at some point or another to assume that position. But I throw this back to people like Barack Obama and mainstream media that heavily criticize uh, someone like a Bernie Sanders who was mentally equipped uh, for that position. I have many criticisms of Bernie today because he's backed down a lot of these promises and he is supporting Joe Biden, actually. But the people, it was very clear, if you looked at the polls, the Democratic primary polling, Bernie Sanders was the candidate that the people wanted. But that wasn't the candidate that the DNC wanted. So they pushed Joe Biden on us. And I don't care, like, you don't win New Hampshire, Nevada. There's controversy over Iowa. Some are saying that Bernie actually really did win Iowa after they tallied all the votes. You don't win all three of those states in a row and then all of a sudden lose in South Carolina. Then next thing you know, Joe Biden is at the top of the ticket. It it just doesn't happen that way unless there was push from the DNC, push from Barack Obama and push from mainstream media as well. So they forced Joe Biden upon us. And now this is what we're stuck with. 
It definitely doesn't seem, uh, the way you put it, like a good situation. And I like that you brought up the fact that she actually does not just do nothing, or at least she's not supposed to just be doing nothing. She's supposed to be in charge of, you know, the border response. There are a number of other issue areas that Vice, uh, that President Biden has saddled Vice President Harris with as sort of issue areas that she's supposed to be busy in. Meanwhile, on the Republican side, you have some of the presidential candidates like Nikki Haley saying and pointing out that a vote for Joe Biden in 2024 is essentially a vote for Kamala Harris because she expects that Biden will not make it through the full uh, second term. Do you think that kind of message will resonate in a general election or leading it up to it? You know, are people that hesitant to support Kamala Harris still like they were in the Democrat primary? Or do you think that's just sort of wishful thinking that they can beat the Democrats by tying it solely to Kamala Harris? I think they'll have to come up with other reasons, but I do think what Nikki Haley is doing there, I think that is a smart move. I don't think it will make people support Nikki Haley, uh, but it just makes people think about the fact that do you feel comfortable with the country being left in the hands of, of Kamala Harris? We have to think about what's happening right now. There's the Ukraine war. So we have like, there's there's tension between uh, the United States and, and Russia and China as well. Is this the person that you want in charge of foreign policy? When she struggles during interviews, she struggles to answer just basic questions. Uh, I remember when she was asked about the border, it was one of her first interviews, and she said, well, no, I haven't been to the, the border, but I also haven't been to Europe. That's not what we need for someone to run the country. You have to know what you're doing. You have to be well-versed in reference to foreign policy. And I don't know about you, but I personally do not think that Kamala Harris would be great in reference to foreign policy. So. That is something I hope more people do take into consideration. The fact that we have this war uh, with Russia and Ukraine, who do you feel comfortable leading the country uh, given the fact that we're on the brink of World War III? When I think about candidates running on this appeal of identity politics really is what it is. Elizabeth Warren trying to get the vote from women, Kamala Harris from women as well. J.D. Vance talking about his working class background. It really exposes just the cracks of running a campaign based on identity politics or trying to get positions based off of it. Because I think about, okay, Kamala Harris, what did she do for women in California? She tried to put mothers in prison. Uh, when their children's attendance was bad. That is not a policy that helps families, that helps women. When I think about Elizabeth Warren sort of faltering on her Medicare for all position, women not getting health care, not exactly a policy that's great for women. And, and so when I talk to people about why I supported Bernie instead, it's really about what policies are good for people. And they would say, well, don't you want a female president? Well, it depends on who it is. If they're not showing up and representing the community that they come from, it's not really great to have that representation anymore. You need to fight for the community you come from for that to be meaningful. So when I think about a, a, a vice presidential candidate like Kamala Harris, and when I think about how the Democrats are running things, I just don't see that representation really happening. Do you think President Biden should pick someone else for the vice presidency for a run in 2024? How do you think the Democratic Party should change things up? I think that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris should step down altogether. I don't think either one of them are equipped or prepared uh, to run this country in 2024. I don't even know if Joe Biden is... I have my suspicions that Joe Biden is not making a lot of decisions right now. I have my suspicions that someone else is helping him. Um, there have been speculation that Obama has been working behind the scenes to assist Joe Biden as well. I just don't think that he is the one that's making a lot of these decisions right now, uh, given his, his mental state. 
And I think that I think honestly, I think both of them need to step down. But this is, you know, this is a fault of the Democratic Party and the DNC because they really forced the American people to say that Joe Biden is going to be the nominee when it was very obvious that the majority of Americans did not want Joe Biden to be the nominee. But this is who they pushed upon us. So this is who we got. We're stuck with. Basically, there have been rumblings of a potential possibility of uh, implementing Gavin Newsom, uh, so to speak. I've heard rumblings about the DNC wanting uh, Michelle Obama uh, to run. But the reality is, no matter which decision they make at this point in time, they're already, they're, they're screwed, so to speak, because they pushed, pushed a candidate on us that the majority of Americans did not want as the nominee. When a lot of people voted in 2020, they weren't necessarily voting for Joe Biden. They were voting against Donald Trump. Not thinking about the fact that this president obviously would have to run for re-election, so he has to warm up to the people. He has to sell uh, his platform to the people, and that doesn't seem to be happening. So here we are. Well, time will tell whether or not the DNC learns anything from what they've put us through this time around, uh, but hopefully they will take something away uh, from this mess. We will be back with more Rising after this. White House National Security Spokesperson John Kirby was confronted by a reporter during a press briefing about Biden's recent gaffes. Not all of his gaffes, just the most recent ones. Let's watch. The president has lied about being at ground zero the day after the September 11th attacks, falsely claimed he saw the Pittsburgh Bridge collapse, uh, claimed his grandfather died in the hospital days before his birth. What is going on with the president? Is he just believing things that didn't happen did happen, or is he just randomly making stuff up? The president uh, was deeply touched and honored to be able to spend 9-11 with uh, military members there in Alaska and some families, uh, and uh, was, uh, was, was honored by their presence and the chance to make an important set of remarks about why we need to continue to remember that day, um, and he did that, um, and he spoke about uh, a visit to Ground Zero, which he did participate in, uh, about a week or so after uh, the the event, um, and what that looked and what that smelled and what like, like that felt like, uh, and it had a visceral impact on him as it did so many other Americans on that terrible day. And he's focused on making sure that an attack like that never happens again, which is why we've improved our over the horizon counterterrorism capability and why we continue to hold terrorist networks uh, accountable. And it's why he spent so much time last week shoring up our national security interests in a vital part of the world uh, on issues that aren't necessarily tied to terrorism, but very much tied uh, to our ability to secure peace and prosperity there and around the world. He's had a string of saying things that happened, things that are easily debunked. Why does he keep doing that? The president was grateful to spend that time with those family members and those troops. Why does Joe Biden keep doing that indeed? That's the question we all have. Let's take a look back at the president's actual 9-11 remarks from earlier this week. Ground Zero in New York. And I remember standing there the next day and looking at the building. I felt like I was looking through the gates of hell. It looked so devastating because the way you could, from where you could stand. 
That was something uh, that Joe Biden said that also definitely did not happen, much like that reel of all the other things he said that also did not happen. And I'm confused why the White House seems to be so dead set on continuing to make these things worse by not just admitting that it turns out he's actually fallible because he's 80 years old and he might not always remember what he was doing two decades ago. But why does he insist on constantly using these anecdotes, tall tales, fibs, lies, if you will, depending on the case, to try to connect with people when theoretically there's plenty of things he could say that would not get him, the White House, and everyone else in hot water and lead to such cringeworthy explanations or attempted explanations from people like John Kirby. Yeah, President Biden talks to the American public. I've said this before, like parents tell their children bedtime stories. It doesn't matter if it's true. It just matters if it's interesting. He'll follow the train of thought wherever it goes. And I think it would sound nice to be at ground zero. And that's as far as his brain goes. He's like, I'm going to say I was at ground zero. That's really how I think his brain is functioning these days. It's scary. It's scary that this is the person in the highest public office. John Kirby's face says everything when he's asked this question, when they're like, well, President Biden said he was at ground zero on 9-11. And he just goes, well, he says so many things. The facial expression just communicates so much there. And so that's the task that you're up to if you're in this administration. You have to answer for President Biden's gas To say that he saw the Pittsburgh Bridge fall, to say that he was at 9-11 on ground zero, he says so many things that are just stories he makes up in his head that he thinks a good president would say or do. And maybe it's a consequence of not growing up in the age of the internet where everyone watching you tell the story, whether it's in a meeting or on cable news, uh, we can look it up now. We can see if what you're saying is actually true. We can live fact check. And so it matters more that what you're saying is accurate. Well, and I think beyond just making a mess for the White House and John Kirby, and you're right, he's always one of the spokespeople for the White House, so you can just see it in his face how he's like, why are we doing this again and again and again? Um, But I think, you know, beyond just making this mess, it also often comes across just very poorly. You know, this is the president, one of their duties as the leader of the American people, supposedly, is to show Americans that he cares and that the federal government does care about what happens to its people and show, you know, raising the visibility of disasters and things like that. But so often, he trots out these very untrue stories when he's supposed to be comforting people, and it just comes off horribly. You know, when he's talking to people who uh, survived the fires in Maui, and he's talking about supposedly his house almost burned to the ground and his wife and cat almost died, but we have newspaper reporting from when it happened that shows it was contained to one room, it was basically this electrical fire, and his Corvette, his precious Corvette, and his cat and his wife were obviously not in real danger. So why does—how does he not have that switch in his head that's like, don't say this, this does not apply? here. Yeah, we had George Bush giving us the, you know, you fool me once, you fool me, you can't get fooled again. But with Biden, it's like, does he have advanced Alzheimer's? It's like, does, is he remembering his own life incorrectly? In Hmm. which case, what else is he forgetting? Now, having a short-term memory, useful, good for the presidency. Having a long-term memory, I would find is also useful. So we don't repeat the mistakes of history, whether you are alive for them or not. It just seems to me that memory is something important for the president to have. So you can have Kirby reassure the public, don't worry, Biden is focused on the here and now and preventing another terrorist attack from devastating the country. I just, I'm not convinced by that, to be focused on the here and now. It's not that reassuring that he's cognizant and is aware of what's going on all of the time. Uh, So I I don't think that talking point really reassures people. And to see John Kirby get a little bit angry, to me, it seems to me, 
he's speaking to the the foreign policy and security establishment. He's like, we have things covered. It doesn't matter to him, I don't think, if Biden is okay, uh, if he's at his peak mental health. I don't think it matters to him because I think he's one of those state career guys that believes the security of the country should be in the hands of people who are career military personnel, career security and intelligence personnel, and that they in fact know better than someone elected by the American people who serve time in Congress. I really believe that he doesn't think it even matters if Joe Biden is cognizant and he wants to talk about what he's doing in his role in the National Security Council. And that's a position that I don't particularly respect because I think that anyone serving in public office should have the backing of the American people and should have to run for election. I think it's a lot of power for individuals to have that are not directly accountable to the public. And so to me, that kind of condescension speaking down to the press where he's like, don't worry, we have everything under control and Biden briefs us and meets with the Security Council as needed. It's just like rubbing me completely the wrong way. Yeah, and I think, you know, like you were saying, it's not, in this case, it's Joe Biden claiming that he was in a place that didn't actually happen. But he has actually said things that got him in trouble with that national security establishment. You know, when he was speaking, uh, I believe it was in Poland, and he ad-libbed the end of a speech about how, uh, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power, basically and seemingly advocating that the U.S. position was for regime change in Russia. And then you had him uh, a few times, I think it's at least three now, saying that the U.S. policy uh, toward China, if there's a conflict between China and Taiwan was to send American forces in to defend Taiwan. And you saw the people like John Kirby and everybody who works for him just scrambling to quickly tell reporters, oh, no, no, that's not that's not the official policy. That's not what he meant, even though it's very clearly what he said. And it, it just adds to this picture of how, like, who's actually in charge here? Is it the people or is it the individual, Joe Biden, that the people elected? Or is it this sort of permanent group of individuals who have just been there forever, don't have real accountability? Joe Biden's probably not going to hold them accountable because he doesn't know where he was or where he is, uh, and it just feeds into this larger problem of should the American people actually trust these institutions? Yeah, I mean, when I think about former regime change type wars and involvements of the United States, we're all reminded of the Iran-Contra scandal time and mm -hmm. again, because it was this moment where Ronald Reagan said to the country, the American people, that yeah, members of Congress were involved in this scheme, our, our CIA was involved in this scheme, to sell weapons to the Contras in Nicaragua after the American people demanded that we didn't and Congress voted unanimously promising the United States would not fund militarily regime change wars in Nicaragua. And then we funnel the money through Iran. And Ronald Reagan says, yes, people I'm very close with in Congress were doing this, Elliot Abrams and the like, the national security establishment was involved, the CIA, the NSA but I had no idea it was going on. I think that means what Bud McFarlane then said on the floor of Congress, that people are, are really starting to believe that the way we run foreign policy in this country isn't so good, but they have no idea just how bad it is. That couldn't be more true. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit there, but I think it speaks to what Biden might know about what our official plan is when it comes to Russia and Ukraine as a problem, you know? We're not supposed to tell the American people we're fighting for regime change there. That stays between us. We do that secretly. The American people find out in 20 years when it's released in the National Security Archives and it's declassified with a significant amount of information redacted. That's how we do things. But Biden, maybe, is doing something good for democracy by forgetting what he can say publicly and not, because now at least we have some government transparency. 
That is an interesting way to find the silver lining of the cloud that is Joe Biden and his many mumbling speeches and things that he's not supposed to say or does say and chooses not to say. Uh, I often wonder exactly what, again, people are willing to tell him and how much uh, talking about the TV show Veep is a phenomenon that happens in that many times where they decide we cannot tell the vice president or the president about this because they'll mention it and then it becomes a whole scandal. We've just got to keep it to ourselves among the unelected, unaccountable people, uh, which I think it's definitely a problem. And like you said, if we ever do find out about it, it comes years later with heavy redactions that make it basically impossible to figure out what actually happened. And also it's too late at that point often to hold anyone meaningfully accountable for it. Uh, and with that, we will be back with more Rising after this. There is more trouble on the horizon for President Biden. Half of his supporters said they would be open to another candidate in 2024. This is according to a Quinnipiac University poll published on Wednesday. While 51% of respondents are willing to switch their vote to a different candidate, 46% reported they plan on sticking with Biden. Meanwhile, Washington Post columnist David Ignatius penned an op-ed calling for Biden to bow out of the 2024 presidential election. In the piece titled, President Biden Should Not Run Again in 2024, Ignatius writes, quote, It's painful to say that given my admiration for much of what they have accomplished, but if he and Harris campaign together in 2024, I think Biden risks undoing his greatest achievement, which was stopping Trump. Here to help us break this all down is Sabrina Salvati, host of the Savvy Sabs podcast. Welcome, Sabrina. Um, I'm wondering, given that the Washington Post has this column now just openly discussing and calling for Joe Biden not to run again, is this a one-off? Is this the establishment getting the marching orders that it's time to sort of jettison Joe Biden? What exactly do you make of this? I think so. I think this is a good example of how uh, mainstream media participates in electoral politics and, and can push and sway uh, some of these political decisions. So if the Washington's the Washington Post, which is a big one, is speaking out and they're uh, vehemently against uh, Joe Biden uh, running for re-election. I think that definitely sends off bells and whistles uh, in reference to the Democratic Party uh, and the DNC as well. I think what people are going to start thinking about, there have been rumblings uh, about no labels as well. There have been rumblings about possibility of a Joe Manchin uh, running against Joe Biden. He hasn't confirmed that yet, but there have been talks about that. But we also have to remember there's also Marianne Williamson and RFK Jr. Uh, running against Joe Biden inside the Democratic Party. And Cornell West is running against Joe Biden uh, through the Green Party. There's also a Dr. Shiva running as an independent. Jasmine Sullivan's running as an independent. Those are just some of the few uh, that I know off, off the top of my head. And I think that this could really open up a lane for a third party run, uh, for someone to come in outside of the duopoly. Uh, for those voters, those half of those voters who said they want someone other than Joe Biden, maybe they may start to look towards a third party option. And I think that that would be great for someone like a Cornell West. Uh, a lot of people that I've spoken to, they didn't even know that Joe Biden had primary challengers. I know a lot of us in this space, sometimes we can find that hard to believe because this is what we talk about a lot, talk about politics, so we're heavily paying attention. But a lot of people don't even know that Marianne Williamson and RFK Jr. are actually running against Joe Biden. Either they're not paying attention to electoral politics yet, or they just haven't seen this information. So. I really do think this could be the year, going into 2024, this could be the time where a third party race could really break out. I think that's a really good point about the lane for a third party candidate that exists right now. 
I remember the narrative was largely that people voted for Biden because Trump was a loose cannon. He didn't do a good job with COVID. We don't know what he's going to do with the nuclear codes. Why is he talking to Kim Jong-un? And so I think that all of this is totally flipped on its head with this recent poll from Quinnipiac, which found that Americans overwhelmingly trust Trump to handle a national crisis better than Biden. 52% think Trump would do better, while 42% believe Biden would. I think this has a lot to do with how he handled, you know, the, the crisis economically in our country immediately when he came into office. There were a lot of policies around economic stimulus that were necessary, but not a lot of policies that lifted up the working class in America that were struggling the most during the pandemic. What do you credit this flip to, uh, Sabrina, or do you think it's a flip at all compared to how people were voting in 2020? I think the economy is a huge factor. A lot of people are not happy with the inflation rates, which as many times, excuse me, as many times as I've heard uh, politicians say that the economy is actually improving. I just saw something recently the other day that said uh, the inflation rate has actually increased again. Uh, so there's that. The grocery store prices are increasing at least every week uh, where I live. So I think the economy is a big factor for people. And some people are going to vote with their wallets uh, when they vote in 2024. The other issue is in reference to handling a national crisis. I think that also goes back to uh, Joe Biden's cognitive ability. I think a lot of people see Joe Biden is making up stories. He's saying he was present uh, the day after 9-11 in New York when he was in D.C. He's continuing to fall down. He's stumbling over his words during press conferences. He's asking where he's supposed to go next. It's very apparent that Joe Biden is struggling uh, mentally. He's having those issues. So in reference to handling some type of catastrophe or disaster, I understand why more Americans would say that they don't feel comfortable with Biden handling that because he just doesn't seem to have it all together at this point. It is interesting to see the difference between uh, the Biden supporters and the Trump supporters. Uh, and if you look at the numbers, former President Trump supporters have proved more loyal to their preferred candidate than Biden's did, which I think goes to a lot of what you were just explaining. So among voters who said they plan on supporting Trump in the Republican primary, 68 percent said they are firmly set on the former president, regardless of what happens between now and the Republican primary. Now, 29 percent said they might change their candidate choice depending on what happens. But then over on Biden's side, he leads Trump by one percentage point, 47 to 46, in a survey of the general electorate in the Quinnipiac poll. So what does this say about Joe Biden and his supporters? You know, again, you mentioned that a lot of people did look to him in 2020 in order to sort of stop Trump. But then you look at people now saying, well, you know, Trump might actually do a better job of handling a crisis. What does it say about Joe Biden's job performance that his people just are not as willing to stick with him? This is the danger about not having a solid base. Joe Biden didn't establish a solid base. A lot of the people that voted for him again were voting against Donald Trump or they were the standard, I'm going to vote for the Democratic Party because I'm a Democrat type of voter, right? Who is polled in these polls? I don't know about either of you, but I've never been polled. Most of my friends have never been polled. It seems like they're polled, polling uh, mainly people that tend to be older uh, and those that have landlines. So there's a lot of us that are, are left out, and I'm, I'm curious to see uh, what that number would be if they included more like Gen Z or millennial uh, voters as well. It would probably be less than 68% um, willing to support Joe Biden. 
But I think what this shows is that regardless how many times uh, politicians continue to say that Joe Biden has done a lot of things and he's done a great job, it's obvious that when the American people look at their bank accounts and when they look at their material conditions, those needs have not been met. Uh, people are still struggling. Uh, we still have to deal with inflation. A lot of these are economic concerns. There's also uh, Joe Biden, you know, choosing not to follow up on his student debt uh, promises to people, uh, choosing not to uh, forgive student debt for students that went to HBCUs. That still hasn't happened. Uh, that whole uh, student debt cancellation issue, the way that he chose to do it versus the way that he was told to do it by his own uh, uh, colleagues there in D.C., it's been a complete disaster. So I think economically, people are going to to show that type of vote. Now, there's always going to be that fear that, well, we don't want to get someone like Donald Trump again. But I feel that the Democratic Party is going to use that excuse, regardless of who the candidate is, so that they can win. Uh, if the Democrats lose in 2024, maybe this will be a wake up call for the party uh, in reference to trying to shut out the concerns of the American people, particularly these economic concerns for people who are working class and people who are poor in this country, uh, instead of and, and trying to toe that establishment line. Maybe it'll be a wake up call. Maybe not. When I think about this, this third party lane, we've had a lot of conversations in the United States recently about what this means uh, for the party duopoly. Can we change it? And my thinking is, yes, of course we can. And there's no better time to do it than now. When we see that voter turnout is about 60% for presidential elections at most in the United States, it really shows that there's a 40% of the country that is still gettable and neither major political party, the Republicans nor the Democrats are getting them. So when people like Cornell West or whoever runs with a third party campaign uh, is a spoiler candidate. It doesn't make sense to me because there's 40% of the American people that neither party is getting right now. If you want to win, maybe inspire more people to go out and vote. The American people are apathetic for a reason. And I think you accurately say it's for economic reasons. But do you think there's a candidate right now that can help that 40% that's not active show up to the polls so that we have you know, a viable third party in the United States? Yes, I think Cornell West would be your best bet. I really do. A lot of people love Cornell West. Um, they know him from the activist scene. Some people know him from academia. Some people know him um, because of his experiences with Bernie Sanders uh, campaigns. So I think that he's someone that's known uh, across uh, the United States for different for different reasons. And I will say, I think that Someone like a Cornell West, if he's able to get the non-voters to come out, this could really disrupt this duopoly. Even if, if Cornell West does not win, it can still send a strong message. And I think that it's important to pay attention to those voters that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party don't care about. It's important to campaign to those people as well. You got to give them something to vote for. People don't come out and vote for those that are non-voters. They don't come out and vote because there's nothing for them to vote for. They know that their material conditions are not going to change. They know that they're still living paycheck to paycheck, regardless if it's a Democrat or Republican that's in office. That's why those people don't show up to come out to vote. Now, in reference to the spoiler comment, they continue to say this about third party candidates. You know, it's really interesting. Like, I would argue it's not even so much that 
they're saying that Cornell West is a spoiler to Joe Biden. What they're really saying is that Cornell West is a spoiler to the military industrial complex in corporate America. That's what the spoiler bell is about because he's running against those things. He's running against the MIC. He's running against uh, the corporate greed and getting corporate money out of electoral politics. He's running against those two things which control both parties. That's what the spoiler effect is that they're talking about, not necessarily about Joe Biden. Considering the fact that half of Biden voters don't want to vote for Joe Biden at this point, I would argue Joe Biden is the spoiler candidate. Maybe that's how we should start phrasing this. Joe Biden, you need to step down. You're the spoiler. I think that's definitely going to be a a refrain that comes up more often, as I do think we're in a place uh, uniquely where there is a lane for a third party to definitely mount a bid here. Um, I do think it's interesting that we'll have to see what happens with that. There's more rising after this. A man who has called himself the most pro-union president in history is facing a possible auto worker strike. President Joe Biden has been watching over the process uh, United Auto Workers are engaging in. They're talking about negotiations with automakers. As laborers have threatened to strike if an agreement is not reached before their current contract expires at 11.59 p.m. tonight, the Washington Post reports. This strike also threatens Joe Biden's clean energy agenda. How will the president protect the economy and keep his climate promises while protecting America's auto workers? Uh, that is a tall order and something that I don't think his track record so far necessarily sets him up for success on. It seems like a long time ago, but it wasn't all that long ago that there was the strike threatened by the rail unions. And obviously Joe Biden and his administration tried to portray him as being very involved in this. Secretary of Transportation Buttigieg was supposedly involved. And they supposedly had a deal that was then voted down by the actual union members working for these rail companies. And so then you had President Biden begging Congress to basically save his hide and enforce a contract on the union that the union members had voted down. So for somebody who claims to be the most pro-union president ever, is he really? No, I mean, I would point to FDR for sure. I'd point to Ike, who wasn't so bad. I would definitely not think of Joe Biden. In the case of the rail workers' potential strike, there were multiple opportunities for the administration to be involved before this last-minute effort where the most basic demands were not met. It was a terrible situation where so many workers were pulling very long shifts. They were not given any sick days. People who are working, driving these trains for 16 hours and then coming home, they could get called back in at three in the morning and have to be there within two hours. This is someone driving a huge freight train on two hours of sleep. That is not something that is safe for the the conductor of the train. It's not safe for anyone around the, the tracks. And just think about the basic human decency. You can't take a day off to see the birth of your child, if you're sick, if you have COVID, if you have to go to the hospital, you face this kind of a penalty where now you're owed days or you owe days rather to your employer and you have to come in if you're called. It's a terrible situation. It's not how you treat human beings. It's certainly not even how you treat workers if you wanna run a successful business. And Biden siding with the rail industry over the workers essentially was just 
the one thing that we can point to and say, absolutely not, you're not a pro-union president. In the case of the auto workers, you have to be on the side of the auto workers here. They signed a contract that they did not have to, taking pay and benefit cuts so that the auto industry wouldn't collapse. Now it's time that they be made whole again, considering the auto industry did not collapse, thanks to them saying, we'll take the cut, we'll take the hit. Well, and I think, you know, obviously that's just sort of the labor union part of this problem that's looming, you know, 11.59 mm -hmm. p.m. tonight. But then obviously there's also, again, this clean energy angle. You know, the Biden administration has been very dead set on this sort of forced energy, quote unquote, transition. Uh, we saw how that went recently when Energy Secretary Granholm attempted an EV uh, road trip uh, around the southeast that ended in the police being called when one of her aides used a gasoline powered vehicle to try to hold a space at an electric vehicle charging station. Uh, do you think that this is going to end up being another hit to the president's attempts to sort of force this electric vehicle transition? Uh, and what sort of an effect will that have if he has to sort of, uh, if it's seen as him having to give up part of that in order to take the side of the unions in this? Uh, it would be the, the worst political decision of his career if he were to say, we're going to ensure degrowth of gasoline-powered vehicles by making workers bear the brunt of the decline in that industry. I think if you're uh, President Joe Biden and you really want to push us towards green energy and actually have a future and do something about climate change, you would have to take this approach of workers are not bearing the burden. We're going to ensure anyone in an industry where we need to shift towards renewable energy, and maybe that means you know, a decrease in production of those making gas power automobiles, we really need to think about what this means for our economy and what's right for people. It can be tempting, I think, especially for members of the left to say, let's punish the people who polluted the planet and contributed to climate change. No, we really need to be thinking about how we can move forward. How can the same mechanics, the same people who do the welding, all of that machinery, tools, land, workers, their expertise, how can we shift that towards maybe let's put them up to the task instead of creating automobiles to help build the infrastructure necessary to have our energy be reliant on renewable energy. That's something that I think their skills are pretty equipped to meet the challenge of. And so we really need to be thinking about how do we repurpose what we already have in our economy to move towards a green energy future without just saying, we're going to let you decline, we're going to let these companies declare bankruptcy, and we're going to entirely rebuild somewhere else. That's just not a good use of resources or our productive capacity, and there's better solutions. And so I don't think a labor fight among an employer and workers is how you get that done. You really need to put forth a vision and pass it off to Congress, perhaps have Kamala Harris go to Congress and present this vision and really push them to move us towards a renewable energy future with shifting policy, with them using the power of the purse and with a forward thinking mindset. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And also this sort of discussion that supposedly, you know, Biden has to choose between clean energy or his uh, commitment supposedly to labor unions kind of reminds me of uh, back when they were trying to undermine coal production, how they suggested, you know, well, coal miners can just learn to code. You know, it's a sort of out of touch understanding of how people who have high skilled jobs that the rest of the country doesn't understand and the people setting these policies just sort of sets them up to look like fools when they actually announce these policies. So it'll be interesting to see whether Joe Biden makes the decision or maybe somebody else in the White House tries to make the decision for him. In terms of, again, you were talking this labor fight, uh, it also kind of coincides very closely with the government shutdown deadline. What do you think sort of the economic pain would be if they don't reach a deal and this strike begins tonight? 
Ooh, that's a really that's a really good point. I mean, we've seen the used car industry prices go up so much. We're already seeing inflation on the rise a little bit. We've seen energy prices go up a, a bit, and that of course affects the prices of everything else in the economy. But I think the consequence of a, a strike starting would be, you know, whose side is Biden going to be on? The the automobile industry is huge in the United States, and this is going to be one of those defining moments, I think, of his presidency if they decide to go on strike and they don't reach a deal. Uh, because Biden's going to have to make the case and explain what's going on, or maybe perhaps have his press secretary explain what's going on, either in the framing of the workers are causing our economy to lose some GDP or some productivity, or to say it is in fact the employers that are causing this decline in industry by not paying their workers fair wages and benefits, especially this is an egregious case because the workers willingly took pay cuts so that the industry would not collapse. And so they haven't been made whole again, despite the, the companies that they work for recouping those profits and those losses. And so this would be a huge defining moment. But economically, I don't see any sort of price increases for automobiles because we've seen decreased demand because these cars are not in production. I don't see that as something that's the fault of the workers. I really see it as the fault of the car manufacturers. manufacturers. And it puts everyday working people who need a vehicle to get to work and do their job in a tough position if they have to buy a new one, they're they're choosing between extremely inflated prices of used cars or potentially, if we see the strike go on for some time, a very high price for a new vehicle. So it puts everyday people in an absolute mess. And there are these huge car manufacturers that can afford to pay their workers more and give more benefits. They're reaping in profits at the expense of everyone else, as well as their shareholders and investors. So again, it's one of those scenarios where the wealthiest people in the country end up faring quite fine either way and everyday working people are struggling, it's time for Biden to step up, I think, especially if he wants a shot in 2024. I'm reminded of President Biden's line that he and others in the White House often use, uh, which is talking about how companies and individuals must pay their fair share. And I'll be interested to see if Biden trots that line out in this case to talk about these automakers. But again, it's a very different situation because these are people who are also uh, typically supportive of Biden and uh, what he's done and what other Democrats have done for the auto industry. But something to keep an eye on, the clock is ticking. We will be back with more Rising after this. Republican Senator Mitt Romney will not be seeking re-election after his current term end in 2025. The 76-year-old cited his age as the motivating factor. He released a video on X yesterday announcing he will retire from the Senate. Let's watch. At the end of another term, I'd be in my mid-80s. Frankly, it's time for a new generation of leaders. They're the ones that need to make the decisions that will shape the world they will be living in. Speaking to reporters later in the day on Wednesday, he said it's time for a new generation to take over, one that doesn't include either Biden or Donald Trump. Let's listen. I think it would be a great thing if both President Biden and former President Trump were to stand aside and let their respective party pick someone in the next generation. Uh, President Trump, excuse me, President Biden, when he was running, said he was a transitional figure to the next generation. Well, time to transition. Uh, David Ignatius this morning made a strong argument uh, that we should see that kind of a change. I think both parties would be far better served if, uh, if they were going to be represented by uh, people uh, other than those of us from the baby boom generation. 
Meanwhile, former President Trump, who Romney voted not once but twice to impeach, relished Romney's retirement, writing on Truth Social, quote, Mitt Romney, sometimes referred to as Pierre Delecto, will not be seeking a second term in the U.S. Senate, where he did not serve with distinction. A big primary fight against him was in the offing, but now that will not be necessary. Congrats to all. Make America great again. Congrats to all, yes. Uh, I guess it's nice to hear someone in the federal government acknowledge age as a factor in getting ready to sort of leave public life in Washington, D.C., amid all these other senators, uh, Romney's colleagues, that seem unwilling to release their stranglehold clause uh, from the grip of power. But I don't know necessarily, you know, as Trump pointed out there, that this was entirely uh, a decision that was made in order to hand the reins to the next generation and may have had something to do with every other Republican, basically, in Utah, uh, considering a primary bid against him. Jessica, what do you think uh, about his decision? Is it all good, or is it a little bit self-serving to avoid getting maybe uh, Liz Cheney'd, for lack of a better term? Yeah, I, I really think Donald Trump, in this case, has to make this argument so that it's not about age. Because I think with Romney, it makes sense that it's about age. He's gonna wanna spend time with his grandkids. He's going to want to retire. He's someone who got done uh, what he could get done of what he wanted to in his political career. And he had a long one and by many metrics, a successful one, regardless of if you agree with his policies. But I think this is the kind of scenario where he's leading by example. We need more members of Congress. We need more people running for the highest political office in our country to just retire instead. It's insane. I mean, Romney seems that he's not experiencing cognitive decline. And I think it's appropriate to retire perhaps before you reach that point, but there are folks still running and Nancy Pelosi just announced her reelection bid. And it's like, y you all should be retiring. I mean, Diane Feinstein being pushed around in a wheelchair, Mitch McConnell's recent freezing up. Members of Congress are too old. We have the oldest Congress in history and we have Biden and Trump running for president. Of course, the response is gonna be the defensive one. Well, he's just saying that because he would lose anyway. Because of course, we shouldn't live in a country where people retire before they're too old to have the cognitive awareness necessary to serve in public office. I mean, the American people deserve better than people who should be in retirement homes. Yeah, I believe it was uh, Nikki Haley who discussed how the Senate was the most privileged nursing home in the country. Uh, and it, it raised, there's a lot of more debate, I think, lately about the age of our politicians and whether or not there should be new requirements on how old you can be, how long you can serve. Um, and I wonder you know, where that's actually going to go, because obviously there's a lot of discussions about things like this. But when the ultimate decision might be up to the very people who are clinging to power, it seems like those sort of policy proposals aren't actually going to go anywhere. And I wonder what your opinion is, uh, whether it's age limits or term limits, if you think that's actually a feasible way that would help this system, or if that would just be another sort of politicized weapon eventually used to try to brush people aside, uh, and maybe one side has more to lose than the other. If there's one thing that our Congress has been bad at historically, it's iterating on policy to make it relevant for the current time. So I think about, yeah, we should have age limits, absolutely. But then I think about medical technology and how much it's advanced in the last 50 to 100 years. And I imagine a Congress that simply refuses to increase the age limit once we experience, you know, longer lifespans in the United States, thanks to medical advancements. Perhaps there's a cure for Alzheimer's and people are able to do their jobs for longer and want to. 
Uh, that would be a scenario that maybe we should increase the age limit, but will members of Congress decide to increase the age limit? Maybe if a significant portion of them are approaching on that age limit, I can understand the argument for term limits as, as well. Uh, you have to get done what you have to get done in these years. Keep good on your campaign prov uh, promises. It's not like you're going to keep collecting lobbying money and make policy that will influence stock futures in a direction that benefits you. I can see the, the arguments for term limits, but I think the better stop on a lot of those things is campaign finance reform, and it's going to be a prevention of insider trading among members of Congress. And I think that there are some members of Congress that are beloved, that are some of the most popular in the country. Bernie Sanders is one of the most popular politicians, has served many consecutive terms, and his constituents are quite happy with him. So I, I tend to be on the side that maybe term limits for members of Congress the the best thing, maybe for the Supreme Court, though it is. Interesting. And I, I do think it's interesting when you look at the other laws that Congress has passed in its history that add age limits to things such as being able to fly commercial airplanes. You know, they are willing to put an age limit on that, uh, but not on their own ability to serve. And it's curious if they think somebody is too old to safely fly uh, aircraft with 150, 200 people behind them, uh, but they think it's fine to continue serving. Um, there's a new survey out that shows Americans want age limit eligibility uh, requirement for presidential candidates. And according to a Quinnipiac poll, six in 10 Americans, both Republicans and Democrats, support an age cap for those running for president. Meanwhile, 60% of Democrats and 57% of Republicans approve of that, and 66% of independents too, do too. Uh, so it's a rare moment where we have seemingly unity among the different sort of warring sides right now. Uh, do you think that the will of the American people will translate into actual action? No, I don't. I think so many times we see these policies that are popular among the American people, you know, higher wages, better benefits. Universal health care was quite popular for some time. Unions are extremely popular in the United States right now. We don't see anyone's political ambitions or preferences now reflected in our democracy. And so our democracy is in, in a lot of trouble when we see that. We see that abortion as an issue. Many people don't believe in a total ban on abortion, but there are so many popular candidates running for president right now that are for a six-week ban. And so that shows that it doesn't have to be a popular policy for someone to get elected if they support it. And I can understand the perspective of perhaps leaders don't just follow what the consensus want. Uh, they define the consensus. And I think about, okay, that's a, a great thing in the case of Martin Luther King Jr. and the fight for civil rights. He was an incredibly unpopular, unpopular figure when he was active. And so much so that many people believe he was killed for his activism. Now, when we think about a figure like that, it seems very justified. But when we think about other political issues like abortion, like better wages, like having term limits and changing our political system so that it works so we don't have members of Congress who are senile or on the edge of it. I think it makes sense there. And so I can see both sides of it. But I think in most cases, I'm more on the side of popular democracy, uh, especially when it comes to something that could be such a simple one line policy of no one may serve beyond this age. Uh, it seems very straightforward to me.
I do think it's important, uh, like you were mentioning, to have a Congress that doesn't just allow sort of uh, tyranny of the majority of the American people and what they want, but of course they always seem to do whatever it takes uh, to oppose anything coming after their own power. And I suspect this is a conversation that will not be going away anytime soon, but we will have more rising right after this. Virginia House of Delegates Democratic candidate live-streamed sex acts with her husband in exchange for money, according to the Washington Post. Susanna Gibson, running for a key seat in a high-stakes race, allegedly performed sexual acts that were published live on a platform called Chatterbait. The outlet was alerted by a Republican operative in a statement to the Post. Gibson appears to take umbrage with Republicans, writing in the expose, quote, an illegal invasion of my privacy designed to humiliate me and my family. It won't intimidate me and it won't silence me. My political opponents and their Republican allies have proven they're willing to commit a sex crime to uh, attack me and my family because there's no line they won't cross. Though the videos are no longer available, over a dozen were archived and have been uploaded to other sites. It is unclear when the videos were taken, but two were archived September 30th, 2022, after she kicked off her bid for the Richmond uh, District House seat. I think this is one of those situations where, you know, this shows she understands economic struggle in America. And it doesn't even matter if she wasn't doing this because she needed the money. I think people's personal lives includes their sex lives and should remain private. I don't think someone should be judged for this. I think someone who runs for public office should be more judged if they had a career working for a corporate law firm or if they had a career working in Goldman Sachs or with the fossil fuel industry. There are a ton of members of Congress who have ties to all kinds of industries that would pretty much ruin their ability to make good judgment on policy when it comes to those industries. And they would likely have a bias towards their friends and allies or whoever they have stock money invested in, and then they're responsible for regulating that company. I care way more about that. It has real policy consequences than what someone does in their personal lives. Well, I think it'll be interesting to see what the voters in this very competitive district, I believe it's rated as R plus one, uh, in what is a very critical election here in the Commonwealth where, you know, Governor Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, is working uh, to shore up his support in both the House of Delegates and the State Senate. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see how that plays into this. I do think it's interesting, uh, sort of putting aside the question of whether or not this is anything to be ashamed of or not, uh, you know, does she have the right to claim that this is revenge porn when this was something that she was producing and putting out and selling live on the internet? Uh, it kind of reminds me some parallels to Hunter Biden and his laptop, you know, where he's claiming that, like, well, this information should never have been made public because this is mine. But again, he's the one that left it abandoned at a laptop repair shop for weeks and weeks on end. So when you're producing this and making this, and it's not surreptitiously recorded, and arguably you consented to recording yourself and publishing it or streaming it live on the internet, what sort of legal questions does that open up about how, uh, you know, whether she's able to claim that just noting that she did this herself, how is that trying to silence her? Yeah, it's interesting to see how this sort of world of streaming and the OnlyFans and the sort of worker-controlled sex work is mm. changing how people view the issue. I think we would have seen a lot more of this group of people that are upset about OnlyFans and online streaming and these kinds of, of sex work that's facilitated through the internet. Those same people that are very outraged about this 
we're not upset about porn in the same way, traditional porn, where, you know, a worker shows up and does what they have to do and they get paid by the people who post it. They're not posting it themselves. Uh, why were you not upset there? And I think it has something to do with in this world of OnlyFans, in this world of streaming, where you post the video yourself, you own the means of production, you're in control. And I think it was probably much more comfortable to a lot of men, I think specifically when women were doing sex work in a way that it was controlled by men. And so now there's this whole new dynamic. And I think because this was something that was streamed and it's not like she has a history of being an actress in porn, uh, it's, it's a bit of a different scenario and maybe it's being handled differently. Is it revenge porn is an interesting question because it was my understanding that revenge porn is when there's a sex act that is recorded entirely in private and it is then made public. But maybe you could claim some kind of breach of a financial contract when you agree to purchase viewership of the video and only view it and not share it and reproduce it. You don't have the rights to the video. Perhaps it's a copyright claim rather than revenge porn. I'm not sure how this is going to be handled here, but it does feel wrong. And so seeing how this plays out in the in the court of law, will it go in the direction of justice? I'm not sure. Yeah, and I think it was interesting if you read the Washington Post original story on this. The, it's a bit of a long read, actually, because it dives into a lot of sort of the ins and outs of how this platform worked and this idea of tokens being purchased with real dollars that are then used in the platform and can be cashed out by whomever you give the tokens to uh, and how uh, this candidate was urging people to give more tokens in order to get private uh, for lack of a better term, private seats to watch her and her husband uh, do these things. Um, it was interesting that the Washington Post noted that they do have a policy to not name victims in these sort of situations, but they made an exception based on a few criteria that they felt this story met, which again was that the videos were published by the person, the subject specifically, uh, and that they were available on a website that didn't require a password. And so I think you're right that this is, again, sort of uncharted territory for whether or not it rises to the level of a scandal for this sort of a situation. Because again, we just don't have that many cases and that much precedent yet for how to handle these kind of things. And it might, like you said, ultimately come down to just the terms of service on Chatterbait and what sort of things they allow and whether the person broadcasting or performing actually owns the right to that. If Chatterbait owns that once it goes out on their system, there's just a lot of gray area here that I think will be interesting. Uh, but I do worry that this will obviously take up a lot of oxygen for her campaign and limit the ability for her to try to actually get out and campaign on the issues, uh, I feel like she's going to be talking about this a lot more. I think that's a really good point. I think most people feel some type of way about someone who's done sex work in their past. We still, I think, have grown up in a culture that's influenced by Protestant values in many ways, even if most people, if you're not religious, I think the society we live in still views this as very taboo. There's definitely not a homogenous view of sex work, even within the Democratic Party or the progressive faction of the Democratic Party. And so I, it's a tough situation to judge how this is going to affect her campaign. I think you're right that she might spend most of her time talking about that issue. And it might push the conversation forward. But when we think about strategically, is this seat going to go to her or a Republican, that puts us in a tough situation because 
are we willing to to stop her campaign entirely because of what she has done in her past and because she has done sex work? I think that puts the party in a really interesting position if they want to start pushing another candidate or not. And so we have to think about this strategically, but we also have to think about the grand scheme of things. Do Is this a norm that we really value changing so much that we're going to defend her and her campaign? I think a lot of people are going to have to make up their mind about this issue if this does take up a lot of airspace and becomes a major you know, thing that people are talking about this time around. And it's definitely interesting, too, when you think back to other candidates or politicians, people who have had higher offices or been seeking higher offices than a House of Delegates seat here in Virginia. You think of, uh, you know, Anthony Weiner. You think of Bill Clinton. You think of people who had, uh, you know, very salacious scandals. I think, you know, Anthony Weiner's was a little bit more public. But it's just interesting to see how, as a country and as an electorate, we view these things and judge the different players in them. And I think this will kind of be added to that list, even if on a, low, a small scale in terms of how voters view these things and what they're willing to accept or not accept. Uh, but we will obviously keep you updated on that as we head towards November. There will be more rising right after this. I have a lot of FOMO right now because I'm not in the studio with Spencer and our guest, journalist and author of The Public Substack, Michael Schellenberger. Welcome, Michael. What were Good you to be with uh, doing today? on Capitol Hill. Yeah, I was testifying on the issue of AI procurement, but Senator uh, Paul wanted me to testify about the role of AI in censorship. And so I spoke about the ways both in which AI has been used to censor people by the social media platforms, but also the way in which AI has been hyped, particularly deep fakes, as a way to create, we think, a predicate or a pretext for more censorship. And that was one of the things I wanted to raise the alarm about. In the process of doing the research, we discovered yet another important organization in the censorship industrial complex called the Deep Trust Alliance, playing on this idea of a deep fake, once again populated by folks that appear to have close ties with the intelligence and security organizations. So uh, happy to be here and sort of continue to raise the alarm about the continued existence of the censorship apparatus. And, you know, you keep talking about how there have been some victories for unveiling and sort of revealing how this censorship state works and sort of tying the hands of the federal government in some cases. But then it seems like anytime there's a win, you uncover something new where it's like, okay, there's another organization that's doing this. What do these recent wins mean? And is there reason to be hopeful that they can actually sort of be bound into what they can do to censor Americans? Yeah, I mean, there's a huge win in that the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals just ruled uh, in favor of Missouri versus Biden, arguing that, in fact, the, the Biden White House had engaged in coercive measures to demand censorship from the social media platforms. It was a really strong ruling. I personally don't think it went far enough. Uh, there was part of it that they actually said that it didn't appear to be a violation that this Department of Homeland Security agency called CISA had massively flagged a number of posts. They left that out because they couldn't find direct coercion. But there were other things that I worry about. I mean, one of the things that we discovered in the Facebook files was that the Facebook agreed to more censorship than they wanted to do, and they worried about the loss of the so-called data flows which was the data they need to bring back from Europe, and they were worried about not getting support from the White House for that. So it's always, you know, I think it is a step, two steps forward, one step back. Mm -hmm. Also, we've seen some things at Twitter that have given us concern, but also Elon stepping in once again on the side of free speech. So it's definitely got a knife fight in a phone booth quality to it. 
So, Michael, I think it's been a common theme that whenever we talk about tech on the floor of Congress, they really show their inability to understand tech or just refusal to do some research before they have to question someone who comes in as an expert. What was your sense of the members of Congress today and their understanding and grasp of AI? Well, I mean, to be fair, AI is incredibly complex. And in fact, you know, the CEO of Google, you may recall, told 60 Minutes that they don't understand often what AI is doing. So you're actually at a place where actually the technology has outpaced the technologists. At the same time, I worry a little bit about this idea that somehow AI is out of control or that the only thing that we need to worry about is the existential risks of AI. I think there's much more mundane or prosaic risks that we need to be worried about. Uh, the use of AI to engage in mass censorship, but then also, as I say on the flip side, hyping AI to demand censorship is, I think, another problem. The hearing itself, in some ways, we didn't have the fireworks because I think, in part, the Democrats learned from when they were really beating up on Matt Taibbi and me uh, back in March that it was better to just not engage at all. So on the one hand, you had, uh, I was engaged with some of the senators on these issues of censorship, but then the other folks on the panel we're focused on more process concerns around how to exercise oversight around government procurement of AI, but not really getting into the core issue, which is, are we going to be using AI to facilitate censorship by the social media platforms? I point out that really for decades, the Defense Department, through DARPA, which is, of course, its R&D uh, funder, part of uh, DOD, that they had actually been funding all, all the work on, on deep fakes. So, this, you know, the alarmism around like deep fakes or that somehow it's going to have some impact on the elections. Uh, we're the most prepared country in the world for it. Uh, our government has funded the work on deep fakes. It's also funded the work on deep fake detection. And so it's a very interesting experience because, of course, we know from the research on, on COVID and the coronavirus that on the one hand, if you're going to be able to create vaccines, you also have to create the viruses. So and you see a similar case here with deep fake where they're actually they need to create the deep fakes in order to create the deep fake detection. And it raises questions around whether or not the Defense Department is using or intends to use deep fakes in an offensive strategy, perhaps abroad, hopefully not domestically, but really with some amount of oversight, because obviously we all see the ways in which deep fakes are getting better and AI is making progress and we don't have a complete understanding of it. And so it's one of these, I think it is fraught and there's two sides of it, which is that on the one hand, we do want to enable the technology. It's an amazing technology. We, many of us, use AI in our day-to-day. -to, -day to you know, as a writer, we use it, uh, you know, grammarly to script various AI programs. On the other hand, uh, we do worry that if it doesn't have the proper oversight, it could be abused. And then we also worry that the alarmism around uh, the deepfakes and the AI can be abused. And I think you're right to say that this is a very fraught situation because there's so much, like you said, that people just don't understand, whether it's lawmakers or the general public. Yeah. Um, we've seen a lot of issues when it comes to regulation around big tech already. So how do you, do you think Congress is equipped to come up with the right potential package? Should there be any regulation on AI? Is Congress equipped to actually make those decisions to come up with something that will safeguard us? Uh, or is this a situation where we just can't trust the government again uh, to keep us safe or to do the right thing? I mean, my interest has been really on the issue of AI and social media for censorship. There's a whole other world of AI for other uh, applications, which I am not expert on. I wouldn't profess to be. But for me, I think what really matters here is the conversation around what are we doing with social media platforms. And for the longest time, the debate has been around whether or not the government should demand social media platforms to censor more, with Democrats basically taking the position that they should censor more, so-called misinformation, Republicans saying they shouldn't do as much. 
My view is that that really needs to change. And really what needs to happen is that if we're going to give Section 230 liability protections, which is the law that really allows Twitter and Facebook to have these monopolies, if they're going to have Section 230, then we should simply require that the users decide on their own content moderation, or what we might call censorship. In other words, when you sign up for Twitter or for Facebook, there will be drop-down menus. You can choose the filters you'd like to have. You could choose the filter from the Anti-Defamation League, the NCAA, and, and uh, NAACP. Mm -hmm. uh, you could choose it from uh, the NRA or from the GOP. But it should be up to you to decide how you're going to filter your content. And there's been some objections to this sort of raised around, well, but the social media platforms are private companies. And that's true. And they do have a right to, to choose what, you know, what content they want. But Section 230 is something that we give them. And so for me, I think it's kind of a, a new you know, social media contract, so to speak, between users and citizens who, who have allowed these very powerful corporations to exist. And in exchange, I think we should be able to control uh, the content and the recommendations made for us. Yeah, I can empathize with the censorship around content moderation, especially. And I can also understand the folks that are concerned about their name, image, likeness, more so their image and likeness being used in these deep fake AIs, which are sometimes taking a, a scary direction. And I think many people just want rights over their image and likeness when it yes. comes to the production of AI videos and such. Have you put any thought into what policies kind of satisfy both sides of it? So we don't have this overreach of censorship, but we also have some protections over our own personal information and data. And did any of those come up on the floor of Congress today? You know, it's funny, those are super important questions and naturally they did not come up in Congress. Um, I do think that's a really essential question because of course on the one hand, you shouldn't, it's, you should control your own image and you should have rights to it. And that's in fact what the, as you know, the, the writer's strike in Hollywood is, is very much about that. Um, but at the same time, I think we do allow for parody and for satire. And so we, for example, we allow editorial cartoonists to uh, you know, to make parodies. Seems like the difference really is if you're trying to pass it off as a parody or as something genuine. And the, because the, we do want to, you know, we have very strong First Amendment protections in the United States. We want to protect those. We want to protect the right for people to engage in parody and criticism. At the same time, I think if somebody is going to, you know, suggest that Michael Schellenberger said something that I didn't say or I don't believe, I think we can also agree that that's probably not right either. So I do think there's going to, some of these issues are going to have to be worked out. Um, but I think at least uh, to start with, we should start with the principle that on social media platforms, users should decide how that content moderation is taking place. Because part of the reason I say this is that, you know, I think we all saw Elon opening up the, you know, X, formerly known as Twitter, the platform more, but then really the advertisers working with NGOs, some of whom have ties or funded by governments, demanding that advertisers not advertise on the platform and really trying to extract the demand out of Elon, that they will censor virality, basically saying you have freedom of speech but not freedom of reach. In fact, we, we, part of freedom of speech is freedom of reach. And we've now seen Elon take a more uh, assertive posture, I would say, against ADL and CCDH and uh, ISD, which are the organizations that have been leading the advertiser boycott. But it gives me concern that we could end up um, basically losing control of these social media platforms. They'd be controlled by some sort of, uh, I think, you know, unconstitutional marriage between 
government and NGOs, NGOs perhaps acting on behalf of governments, funded by governments, and really depriving us of, of our control over our, free, over, over our own speech and over what we're able to hear from others. Well, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us here today talking about what you were here for and sharing your expertise with Congress because they need all the help they can get to understand these important issues. Uh, until next time, there will be more rising right after this. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy dropped an F-bomb while venting his frustration about the hardline conservatives holding up appropriations, dropping an expletive as he dared his fiercest critics to attempt a vote to oust him. Chief among them, Representative Matt Gates. Here to break it down for us is The Hill's congressional reporter, Michael Schnell. Welcome. It's good to have you on. Hey, thanks guys for having me. So we had this really spicy speech from Gates saying that there were all of these agreements we made to get you elected as speaker. We talked about term limits. We talked about balancing the budget and the debt limit. We talked about releasing the January 6 tapes, uh, subpoenaing Hunter Biden to the floor of Congress. And Gates was very frustrated that these things did not happen. So Kevin McCarthy giving this response, it seems like drama, seems like the girls are fighting. What do you make of this debate between Gates and McCarthy? Yeah, look, I think if I say that there's a lot of tension right now between Gates and McCarthy, that would be an understatement, right? And this isn't anything new. Matt Gates was one of the six lawmakers who never once supported McCarthy during the speaker's race back in January. He did not once vote for McCarthy throughout those 15 ballots. And, uh, you know, the right flank since then has been pushing McCarthy on a number of these priorities, spending being foremost among those. So this week, it's really ramped up from Gates. You mentioned that floor speech we saw earlier this week, him essentially saying, look, McCarthy, you haven't been acting in line with this agreement that we made back in January, which included lower spending levels, votes on a variety of different bills. He said, you're not in line with this. And if you continue to not be in line with this, I will be bringing a motion to vacate the chair, which is essentially a way to force a vote on ousting the speaker. Now, we saw, you know, this accelerate uh, today during that closed door conference meeting in the Capitol among House Republicans with McCarthy essentially saying, listen, if you if someone wants to bring a motion to vacate against me, bring the effing motion, essentially daring his conservative uh, his conservative opponents right there to bring this motion against him. Gates answered and said, instead of engaging in this in this rhetoric, we should be passing appropriations bills. But look, there has been a lot of tension bubbling between these two since January. And today, this morning, it seemed to sort of bubble up over the edge a little bit. And, you know, just looking at sort of the mechanics of how this would happen if somebody were to bring this motion to vacate, you know, we all remember how long it took for them to initially elect Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. And McCarthy has pushed back on some of this uh, calls for him to step down or be removed, saying any other speaker would do the same thing. What would it look like? And do you think the conservatives in the Republican conference would actually achieve anything if they were to pursue this motion to vacate? Would the next speaker that they put forward, if they were able to pick one, would they do anything differently than what Kevin McCarthy is doing? Well, look, to start off, I don't think that a motion to vacate would actually pass, right? I mean, it's an open question of whether or not Democrats would support a motion. They have been mum on it. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries earlier this week said he wouldn't he, he wouldn't engage with the question. So that remains a wild card here. But Kevin McCarthy has a, a, the majority of the Republican conference is supportive of Kevin McCarthy. Right. Uh, we heard from members who are swatting back at that, saying that this these group of conservatives, some of them are members who never actually supported McCarthy from the beginning. There were six 
conservatives back in January who just never gave McCarthy their support during that speaker's race. So if this were brought to the floor, I don't think it would pass. I think McCarthy would be safe. And I think that that, you know, maybe going through his head as he's essentially daring his conservative detractors, hey, try me. But I think another interesting thing when we have this conversation is, you know, McCarthy is in a way has gotten himself into this mess. And that's because during the speaker's race back in January, in order to attain the gavel and flip some of those conservative holdouts, he had to promise to bring down the threshold to force a motion to vacate the chair from five members down to one member. So in the past, uh, you needed five lawmakers banded together in an agreement that there needed to be a vote on ousting the speaker in order for that vote to take place. But now McCarthy brought it down to just one because that was a really high up demand of some of these conservatives. So this was sort of always a question of, well, when would we get to, you know, the first motion to vacate vote, assuming it would happen with a lot of these conservatives laying out demands. And again, him agreeing in order to get a hold of that gavel to bring the threshold down to one member. So it's a really interesting dynamic there when you look at it, because a lot of this tension started out back in January. Yeah, a lot of the tension did start off back in January. It's interesting now that we saw so much on the C-SPAN footage of the floor of Congress, all of these conversations happening among members of Congress and a lot of speculation about what kinds of deals they were making in order to win more votes. And it sounds to me like they, they promised things that they probably couldn't deliver on being McCarthy and McCarthy's faction. It seems to me that this is almost a reflection of what most voters in America feel about a lot of people. They've elected to positions on certain policy platforms and then they get into office and they can't deliver on those policy promises, whether it's, you know, their doing and their decision making or not. It seems to me Matt Gates now has that frustration him, himself, but also understanding how this all went down how so many votes went into finally McCarthy getting the majority or the plurality rather that he needed to become Speaker of the House. So Kevin McCarthy getting frustrated on the floor of Congress about this, dropping an F-bomb, kind of out of character for him. We did see some tense moments in the past, but is this like a big breaking point in the Republican Party or do we think that they'll be able to recover from this kind of break in Congress? Well, I will note the F-bomb happened behind closed doors in that a private conference meeting among House Republicans, so not, not on the House floor. But when you talk about this current moment, I mean, it, we're, we're in a very high-pressure moment of the year, right? September 30th is that government funding deadline. Uh, McCarthy has said that he wants to avoid a government shutdown. A number of conservatives had said that they're okay with a shutdown, that they think that, you know, pushing uh, to bring spending levels down to cut spending. Uh, that is a worthy and a noble fight. And if that fight brings them to a shutdown, Congressman Ralph Norman, a member of the Conservative Freedom Caucus, he told me, so be it. That was his quote. So I think that, you know, this is a very high pressure moment right now for Congress, especially when you look at the other side of the Capitol. The Senate is moving along in this appropriations process in a bipartisan manner. They advanced all their appropriations bills out of committee and bipartisan votes. They have been churning along with floor action on those appropriations bills uh, um, uh, in a bipartisan fashion. And members of both parties in that chamber have said that they want to pass Ukraine funding and they want to pass other money in the supplemental that Kevin McCarthy, that uh, the White House unveiled over the summer. Republicans, House Republicans degree, uh, disagree on all of that. So it's a very high pressure moment right now uh, in Congress in general. 
but especially from McCarthy as he has these disagreements within his conference. And I'll also note, you know, Kevin McCarthy doesn't have an easy job being Speaker of the House for such a small Republican majority, right? He can only afford to lose a handful of Republican votes on some of these really partisan matters. And when you have the party fractured in all different directions, putting up different demands, being opposed to different things, Counting votes is very difficult, and that's why a number of times throughout this Congress we've seen McCarthy having a math problem, right? Will he be able to get the votes? What promises is he going to have to make to flip some of these holdouts? We're seeing this again right now, but the odds and the stakes are so much higher because the threat of a shutdown is at the end of the month. That is true. The clock is ticking. There's a lot of money to be spent or allocated. There's a lot of math to be done by Speaker McCarthy. Michael, thank you for bringing this uh, important update to us on the internal drama. There will be more rising after this. UFO enthusiasts may be a bit disappointed by NASA's announcement this Thursday where they said their UAP study team has found no extraterrestrial origins of UFO sightings. This is the first report of its kind. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said they are appointing a director of UAP research to further study the issue. Let's watch. Top takeaway from the study is that there is a lot more to learn. The NASA independent study team did not find any evidence that UAP have an extraterrestrial origin. But we don't know what these UAP are. That's why I'm announcing that NASA has appointed a NASA director of UAP research. They are being tasked with developing and overseeing the implementation of NASA's vision for UAP research. We will use NASA's expertise to work with other agencies to analyze UAP. We will use AI and machine learning to search the skies for anomalies as we have been searching the heavens and will continue to search the heavens for habitability, and NASA will do this transparently. So I guess the good news maybe is that these are not extraterrestrial things that we have recorded flying around. It also always seems like these videos they release of these UAPs were shot on like a baked potato. Like I'm confused as to why the quality of these images aren't better yet. Um, but the more alarming thing is we don't know where they're from. So I guess then the options are if they're not extraterrestrial, they're from somewhere else terrestrial, which would mean China, Russia, North Korea, perhaps, Iran, you know, is this really reassuring? And if we don't know where they're coming from, but somewhere on this earth, does that then put the U.S. suddenly at somewhat of a disadvantage that we don't have things with this capability to be showing up in other nations' skies? I think he has chosen his words very carefully there. He didn't say we have evidence that they're definitely terrestrial. We have evidence that they're all from Earth. He just said we have no evidence to definitively prove that they are extraterrestrial. And so basically he's saying, we still don't know where they're from. That's all that communicates to me. And it's like, okay, we don't for sure know that they're from outside of this world. Got it. 
some of them just like fly through the sky and we have a, a short video that as you say looks like it's from a baked potato i'm sure they've detected things on their radar before it's the kind of scenario where yeah unless we get the spacecraft and we talk to the aliens we don't really know it's not from here if they're just passing through we have no chance to collect any evidence that it's not from this planet and so i think it's this kind of very careful way of speaking to quell a lot of the recent I think excitement about all of the UAPs and aliens and UFOs. I think there might have been a determination. Maybe people aren't ready to hear that we're not sure if they're from this planet or not. It could be careful communication, but to me, this isn't them saying there's definitely no aliens. It's, I don't think that's what they're communicating in that press conference. I think uh, putting aside the idea again that they're just passing through or perhaps we're planning on coming here, saw what's going on on Earth and just decided to hit it and look for a rest stop on the next planet or the next solar system over, hard to blame them for that. Um, I do think it's interesting, you know, you mentioned that there's a lot more interest in UFOs, UAPs lately and there was that hearing on Capitol Hill recently uh, where you had somebody there, essentially this whistleblower, claiming that not only do we have crashed or landed UAPs, but supposedly the U.S. government has in its possession, uh, I think it was non-human biologics was the term that was used, you know, suggesting that we have alien bodies somewhere sitting in a warehouse. Uh, now, a lot of people have questioned the veracity of that whistleblower's claims, uh, but do you think the American people, what would the reaction be if the government were to confirm that, yes, these are extraterrestrial and we have some of their bodies? You know, is that, to your point, are the American people ready to hear that? I don't know. I, I'm on the side of, yes, the American people are ready to hear it. This kind of paternalistic thinking that we have to protect the general public from the truth is ridiculous to assume that members of NASA or the security establishment have some unique kind of fortitude for stomaching the fact that there might be life beyond Earth is absurd absurd to me. They're just like everybody else. They don't have this unique ability to be so brave that they can think about the existence of aliens. I, I just really don't buy it. It might be a shock at first. And I think many people are in denial because they won't let their brain go there to think through how much of their lives would change if we had aliens here on Earth or what have you. And so many people have this skepticism where they're like, I'll believe it when I see real evidence. I'm not taking the whistleblower's word for it, even though there's a higher standard for them reporting on this than any other story before. The amount of military personnel that David Grush talked to and members of the security establishment, and then you had Schellenberger go and report and talk to more people to corroborate the accounts that Grush reported on. I mean, this is such good journalism compared to any other topic. Why were we willing to believe George Bush when he's like, they've got some weapons of mass destruction. We're like, no need to look into that. We believe you, sir. But now we have folks whistleblowing on this issue and we're like, I'll believe it when I meet an alien. I think there are some people that are skeptical because they're afraid. That doesn't mean they're not capable of stomaching the information though. What do you make of it? Do you think that the American people are ready? I don't, I, I want to say yes for the same reasons that you said, you know, the government shouldn't be acting as, you know, like, it's okay for you to know this or think about this, because obviously we saw how that can go awry so quickly with everything the White House and the Biden administration was doing to censor information through big tech companies about COVID, the vaccines, things like that. We can see when things go very wrong whenever the government thinks that they know best and thinks they know what the American people can handle. Um, but I also just feel like that's one more thing that the American people just don't have room in their brains 
to handle, which might be a good thing. You know, I, I almost feel like given the way that the news is going and the way the economy is, you know, not doing well, and we've got wars in Russia and Ukraine, we've got potential wars between Russia or China and Taiwan, rather. Um, it, it would probably be one of those things where, like, yes, the government has confirmed the existence of extraterrestrial life and and other news, and I feel people would just kind of brush over it because what are we going to do about it, right? We can hardly handle just keeping the auto worker unions from going on strike. How are we supposed to even conceptualize what the government would do? You know, would we have to find an ambassador to the extraterrestrial thing? Like, it would just, it would not go anywhere. Yeah, I could be the ambassador, the communicator Perfect. between the, the U.S. government or the world and the aliens. I'm up for the job. I mean, I think, yes, people are ready for it. Do I think that this administration is particularly mm. good at communicating about big issues and crises? Corrine Jean-Pierre left when she was asked about Hunter Biden. I don't think they're equipped to communicate around this at all. I think you bring up a good point in talking about COVID. Something scientific that is a bit more than what everyday people think about on a day-to-day -day basis. How do we manage and contain a pandemic? How do we manage public health in a way that keeps most people safe and healthy? How do we communicate about what a vaccine does why they're safe, what the science is behind them. They absolutely failed when it came to COVID communication. I just think this administration is uniquely bad at communicating with the general public around important issues. They've had so many mistakes throughout this administration. Bidenomics is another one. You can't just say we did Bidenomics and the economy is better now when everyday people are hurting and the messaging doesn't match the evidence in their everyday lives. And so I think people are ready, but I think this administration would absolutely absolutely fail in trying to communicate about UAPs, UFOs, and extraterrestrial life. I think you are absolutely right on that. This administration could be perhaps the worst equipped in history to reveal to the American people and therefore the world the existence of extraterrestrial life. Uh, I can just imagine uh, Karine Jean-Pierre trying to uh, explain that to reporters, or maybe even when they ask about it, she'd just turn around and walk away uh, like she does with any other question she doesn't want to answer. Uh, we will be right back with more Rising right after this. During a town hall with News Nation Republican candidate for president and former vice president Mike Pence was asked this question that seemingly stumped him. Let's watch. One of the things uh, that has been said about how you conduct your personal life is you will not eat alone or, or meet alone with, with a woman. Um, one of the hallmarks of your presidency and one of the things that was reported on a lot was your private lunches one-on-one -on -one with Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. How would that work out if you had a female vice president? Well, I, that's, a, that's a very clever question. It, it really is. <laughs> Let me say, it's a promise uh, my wife and I made to one another. I wasn't, didn't think it was particularly controversial. When I was first elected to Congress, I did an interview about the fact that we kept our family close in public service. Somebody asked us about some of the promises we'd made to one another, and I, I remember I said, well, I, I promised her that I wouldn't dine alone with a woman. It's not my wife. And it uh, wasn't very controversial until after I became vice president. Somebody unearthed that quote, and became quite an issue. Do you think it's an unfair for, criticism? I, look, I, I respect the way anybody manages their marriage, and I never want to feel like I'm imposing my values on anybody. But I have to tell you, what, what we were so moved by was the outpouring of support across the country, as some on the liberal left in the media found a way to kind of 
criticize us for putting that priority on our on our marriage. But then I I, I remember a. Imagine being in the White House. You have someone in your cabinet who's a woman and they're like, you know, I have some very important information. I need to meet with you one on one. Can I step into the Oval Office at this time? Whatever you talk to their aide. The aide brings it up with Mike Pence, who is then president. And he says, are you kidding me? I have a wife. Like, it's a bit ridiculous. You're going to have to work with people of the other gender. Just answer the question. Just say, if it's necessary for doing the duties of president, yes, I would. Or you could make light of it and be like, well, I'd have to ask my wife and then be like, let's get to more serious questions. There are a lot of ways you could have handled that. The way he handled that suggests things are maybe worse than we know in his marriage, which is not information I particularly care about. He is very comfortable, as we all saw, hopping up, you know, man and man on a tractor together, a tractor with only one seat that they had to share, hopping up and just toggling with the... I'm not um, the shifter on the tractor saying basically like, you know, how does this thing work? Show me around. And then there was a lot of touching going on. If I was his wife, I'd be a little bit more concerned about what he's doing with men who drive tractors on the campaign trail than maybe women in the Oval Office who need to meet with him. Well, I think I think the interesting question is like, is this a rule where it's kind of like the spirit of it? Because I do, you know, like he was saying, he's not trying to say everybody has to have this rule. But for him, you know, I feel like the spirit of it makes some sense in that, you know, when you're going off to Washington, it's a very isolating city. There's obviously D.C. has a very long track record of extramarital affairs and shenanigans going on. So I think it sort of makes sense to, again, just sort of prevent the optics that maybe he's, you know, stepping out on his wife and to make sure that she feels respected in what he's doing. But obviously being a member of Congress and having that rule as somebody just coming to D.C. for the first time is very different from potentially the president of the United States being in meetings in the Oval Office office or wherever he may be. But again, when you're the president, you're usually not alone one-on-one -on -one with people. There are normally a lot of advisors around. Um, chief of staff is generally somebody who's involved in a lot of these meetings. So it, it's one of those things where, again, is this a spirit of it where he is never allowed to be in a room alone with a woman who's not his wife? Or is this something that, again, was just to prevent the optics from being uh, ones that would make Karen feel disrespected? Uh, and I do think, you know, in a time where everybody seems to be, you know, questioning what is moral, what is not. It's kind of nice to have the wholesome Midwesternness of the Pences on display sort of as a contrast to this, however impractical it might be in the Oval Office. Yes, I think you make a good point that there are a lot of people always around. He could have very easily said, well, the Secret Service will be there if I'm meeting with a woman in the White House. They'll be monitoring. I won't be alone with a woman in the White House, so it would be no problem. And I think, you know, he makes a good point that many people appreciate this way of managing a relationship. And I like that he said, I respect how anybody manages their relationship or their marriage. This is not the only way to do it. You know, as someone who's a little bit more traditional in my own relationship, I respect that view. And I respect the way he says you can do whatever you want. I think that's a good view from someone who's running for president, who's just been asked about his personal life to actually, you know, answer the question and divulge some of his personal thinking. I don't really appreciate the argument that that's not relevant for him running for president in this case, 
because I think how someone morally judges their own relationship and others' relationships speaks a lot to their ethics and decision-making process, which is really what you're voting for. We don't know if the policy positions that we're debating today are going to be the most important decisions that Mike Pence, if he becomes president, will go on to make. We need to know a little bit about his ethics and moral character and decision-making process. And I think ultimately he gave a pretty good answer to kind of a ridiculous question, but I would have liked him to say that, yes, I will meet with women. I don't want this to be an all-male administration. Hopefully the Secret Service being around will suffice there. Yeah, and there's another whole side of this too, which is once you're the president of the United States, you know, people don't know necessarily what's happening inside the White House, as we learned from the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal. You know, just because you have a rule about things doesn't mean that things aren't going to happen. And so, again, I don't think that he's the type of politician or person uh, that would decide to have an affair with an intern. Uh, because he can. Uh, but like you said, I do think the sort of tolerance that he has, or that he at least uh, expressed there, for you can live your life and have your relationship be whatever you want it to be, whatever works for you and your partner, I do think is nice to hear. Because again, the president is there to lead the country, not necessarily issue edicts and say, this is how I live my life, and that's why you must do all the same things. Um, I do think the, the lack of an acknowledgment that like, oh, of course I'll have women in my administration was not great, and I think would have been a good part of that answer saying, again, you know, that he's going to have a lot of different people and voices and perspectives represented in his potential administration. I think that would have helped. Uh, but it was kind of, again, it's an outrageous question, kind of one that is hard to answer eloquently because, again, you're trying to navigate the path between this is what I do in my personal life, this is not what I'm going to force you to do, and trying to explain that is kind of weird, especially for people who are typically more private than a lot of other politicians may be with their personal lives. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, having Mike Pence address this, does it make sense? Because I think anyone would just assume, yeah, that applies to his personal life. Obviously, there's some standard there. We can have our discernment. It's a good gotcha question if you're looking for a gotcha mm. question, though. And I enjoy hearing a little bit about the presidential candidate's personal decision-making processes for the reasons I described. And I hope we hear more of that, especially from someone like Mike Pence, who's a bit cold and a bit reserved. I think we really have to get to know someone before we make a decision about who to vote for. So hopefully we'll hear more on that from the campaign trail. But be sure to like, share, and subscribe to The Hill Rising so you make sure you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. It was a really good show with you, Spencer. I hope we get to team up again and talk about the ridiculousness going on in the country. Yes, this was great. It was a great way to spend uh, Friday Eve. Bye, y'all.